If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number four. Hebrews, chapter number four. Last time we were together, just last Sunday, we looked at the first half of this section. This is a new chapter, but it's really continuing a section begun in chapter three. And the example there was the nation of Israel brought out of their Egyptian bondage, set on a course for the promised land. They came out through the parting of the Red Sea. The seas were parted and they crossed over on dry ground. They ate bread from heaven. God provided for their food needs through manna and quail and for their thirst with water from a rock. They beheld the power of God in the most remarkable of ways. And yet it did not take them long in their wilderness journey to rebel against God, to revert back to their former way, to make this observation, it was better for us in Egypt, to remember those days for more than what they were, and to look begrudgingly on this journey God had now set them on, on a course for the promised land. For their unbelief, for their disobedience born out of unbelief, God cursed that generation and forbid them that they would enter into the rest that had previously been afforded them in a land that was to flow with milk and with honey. That becomes the example we are not to follow. We, we were cautioned against being among those, or being of those rather, who are close to the work of God who are in proximity to great miracle-working power, who have observed God work in the most powerful ways in the lives of people who may be next to us, but have never ourselves been truly touched by the saving power of the gospel. That illustration is continued in chapters 4 and 5, and it, fe and it features strongly in chapter 6 as well. But it provides immediate context for what we're going to read in verses 1 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 4. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says here, Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard didn't benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest since it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he specifies a certain day today speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. 
Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I wonder if there are any of you here this morning who are weary. And I don't mean weary in the physical sense, although that's often a part of being spiritually or emotionally weary. I just mean weary altogether or weary in general. My home church pastor, when people would say complimentary things about the sermon upon the dismissal of the service, he would always say, the food always tastes better when you're hungry. Now, I suspect that for those of you who are weary, this morning's text and this morning's message will be especially helpful. For those of you who are not weary in this sense I intend, tuck away this word in your heart, your turn is coming soon. We have in verses one through five of our passage this promise of rest. And there's an argument building here in the text that I want you to be able to follow after. Look to verse number one. Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. Now, here and elsewhere, it seems that this idea of resting in Jesus is something reserved for us in a day that is to come. In other words, at the end of all things, when Christ comes again, when we inhabit the new heaven and the new earth, there will be full and final rest for us in Jesus. This is true. This is a reality that we embrace and we celebrate. This is the peace that overcomes the sorrow that shadows us in those seasons of life when death is imminent. This is the hope and encouragement that overwhelms us and comforts us even when we prepare ourselves to let go of those we love the most. There awaits for us at the end of all things a peace that passes all understanding. We finally at that moment lay hold to perfect peace in Jesus. We are wrestling and wrangling to enjoy peace in the here and now, but on that day, sin and all of its stain will have ceased. It will fade away, and we will enjoy perfect peace in Christ. There is peace to be enjoyed in the end for the believer. Verse 2, the Bible says, We also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard didn't benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. In the same way, the people of Israel heard the good news of a land that flowed with milk and honey and would not trust the promise of God. We must caution ourselves that we not hear the promise of good news in Jesus and not entrust ourselves to the promise of God. To be saved from our sin to enjoy the rest that God affords us. We need more than to merely hear the promise of God. We need more than to merely know the good news message. We must entrust our soul to Jesus. In the same way the people of Israel were to trust what they had not yet seen, that God would indeed give them victory over those giants in the land, that they would inhabit the land that flowed with milk and honey, that that land would be their home. 
We must trust the promise of God even when we cannot see his hand at work. In the same way they received the good news but didn't receive its benefit, we must caution ourselves against the same fate. Hearing the good news, we must entrust our soul to a good and faithful God who always keeps his promises. Verse 3, the Bible says, For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Speaking of that generation, he's citing again Psalm 95, and we addressed that to some extent in last week's message. That verse, verse 3, continues, and yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Now this is a little bit challenging to keep up with, but follow the argument the preacher is establishing here. I've decided this week I'm just going to refer to the author of Hebrews as the preacher because it's easier than the jumbled up mouthful that is the author of Hebrews, right? Who I happen to think is probably Luke, who is the author of the Gospel of Luke, but that's a sidebar conversation we can have elsewhere. I'm just going to refer to the author of Hebrews as the preacher, and the preacher is building an argument. He's pointed out for us that in the end, on the last day, there will be perfect peace. There will be absolute rest for the people of God. But here he notes that God has rested in the beginning. Yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, and he cites Genesis chapter 2, verse number 2, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Now in the immediate context of Genesis 2-2, it appears that God is resting from his creative work. He makes the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the beast of the field and the fish of the sea, even mankind as we are. And on the seventh day, God rests from his labor. But the preacher is here interpreting that verse theologically to say that not only does God rest from his creative work, God has rested from his work in salvation. The rest God intends to afford us has been provided, signed, sealed, and delivered in the very foundation of the world. God set in motion his plan for redemption so that our rest was again signed, sealed, and delivered in the very foundation of the earth. There is rest in the beginning, and there is rest in the end. But the preacher wants to drive that a little closer to home. Look at verse 5. Again in that passage, he says, They will never enter my rest, since it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he, spe he specifies a certain day today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is the argument that the preacher is making. There is rest in the beginning. God's rest exists from the very foundation of the world. An invitation has been extended that we would enter into that rest. There will be rest for us, full and final rest at the end. 
But there is rest for us in the present in so much as we entrust our souls to God. And the way he demonstrates this is this way. He says, first of all, he forbid Moses' generation from entering, entering into that rest. Now, some might operate and think this way. Moses' generation didn't enter the rest, but Joshua's generation did. And we'll get to that in, in just a moment. Joshua takes the mantle of Moses and he leads the children of Israel across the Jordan in a miracle on par with the parting of the Red Sea. The waters of the Jordan stand still. They become as a wall to their north and their right, and they cross over east from west into the land that flows with milk and honey. God goes before the children of Israel in a swarm of hornets and with various other miracles. He assists in the conquering of those peoples who once inhabited the promised land. He gives the land, quite literally, God gives the land into the hand of the children of Israel. But it was an imperfect conquest. They imperfectly inhabit the promised land. They themselves had not yet entered into that rest. And the proof of this is the fact that David, hundreds of years after the generation of Joshua, invites the people of Israel to abide in, to enter into that rest. After a long time had passed, David specifies a day, the preacher says, that we might enter that rest. Rest is not just something that God enjoyed in the beginning or something that we might observe at the end. Rest for our soul is something we might know on what day? Today, this day, not only is there rest in the end and rest in the beginning, there's rest in the present for those who entrust their souls to a good and faithful God. This is the argument and this is the invitation that at this very moment you find your rest in Jesus, that you come to him and entrust your soul to him. Rest in Christ. Now, our senses are made reference to here in the passage, and I think there's some allusion to the experience of Israel as well. Remember that God promised them that land is going to be yours. And they sent out the spies, and they, they began to peer into that land, and they came back and they gave the report that we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Those people are giants. There's no way that we can conquer this land. It can't be our land. They couldn't make the promise they'd heard with their ears jive with what they were observing with their eyes. So the psalmist is quoted again, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, it's a reference to the promise of God made in times past. It's a call to us to trust the promise of God. There's a heavy emphasis on God's word in the book of Hebrews. And so in verses 12 through 13 of our passage, and we'll look at these in greater detail next week, we have this interruption in the flow of Hebrews. This pause to celebrate the word of God. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It seems like an abrupt break in the flow of the book of Hebrews except when we remember the fact that so much of what has been said by the preacher thus far in Hebrews is built up on the case made from Old Testament text. We can trust the promise of God. Today, if you hear his voice, is an invitation 
to trust the promise of God, we hear with our ears more so than what we might observe with our eyes. Remember the preacher's congregation, first century Jews who'd come to faith in Christ. And we're now not only struggling with all of the challenges of living outside the culture they were accustomed to, facing almost constant persecution for their departure from that culture. They're not able to look out so much with their eyes and see the promises of God as they read them or as they hear them fulfilled the way they might have expected. And if we'll be honest with ourselves for just a moment, there are times when we hear the promise of God, but what we see with our eyes somehow doesn't jive. It just does not measure up to what we might have expected. When I became a Christian, I just assumed that this would make some things better for me. And no doubt there were some things that were made better, but there were some hardships, there were some challenges that I never expected. There were difficulties that were introduced into my life that I never had to deal with in my old life. I never had to worry about those things. They were never a bother to me. And there are times even now when I look out, when I'm hearing something in my ears from the Lord, the promise of God rings true in my ears, but I'm looking out and something just doesn't add up. And the preacher says, trust your ears before you trust your eyes. The promise of God is true. God always keeps his promise today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Not only is there rest for the weary soul today, there's a rest that's predicated in the promise of God in spite of what you may observe or see with your eyes around you. When wind and wave overwhelm you, trust the promise of God. And even damp and broken and cold, trust the promise of God and find rest for your soul. When the diagnosis is not what you'd hoped it'd be, and even the prognosis is bad for you, trust the promise of God, even when what you see with your eyes doesn't add up or measure up to what expectation you might have had for this particular season in your life. Trust the promise of God. Trust your ears over your eyes is the language of Hebrews chapter 4. God can be trusted. In verse 8, the Bible says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. In keeping with the pattern of our series, this is where we note that Jesus is better than Joshua. Joshua, as we said, took the mantle of Moses, and his responsibility was to lead the children of Israel into that promised land, and he did. But again, it was an imperfect inhabitation. It was an imperfect conquest over the land. What Joshua could not deliver, Jesus has delivered in absolute perfection. What Joshua could not do for the children of Israel, Jesus has done for everyone by the shedding of his blood and his victory over death in resurrection. Jesus is just better. And I wonder how much for first century readers of the book of Hebrews or first century listeners to the preacher, this passage combined with the one that we looked at last week isn't an exclamation point for them that Jesus is just better than your former way of life. Everything about their identity was bound up in Moses and in Joshua. It was through Moses the law came. 
It was through Joshua the land came. Joshua was the administrator, the supervisor over the tribal allotments for the 12 tribes of Judah. Their, their land connections, their identity associated with that, the law that they had from God, it all came through Moses and Joshua. Everything about their former way of life was bound up in Moses and Joshua. And here the Bible says, Jesus is better. Everything about your former way of life was bound up in something attached to this earthly existence, bound up in the things of this world. Your identity, your security, your community, it all came packaged in some clever way, some counterfeit way that was to entice you and invite you. You remember it better than what it was in reality. This new walk with Jesus has called you away from such things to a new identity, to places of new security, to a new kind of community. And it's a strange existence. And it's often difficult to walk worthy of your calling in this new existence. Your tendency is to revert back to your former way of life, to go back to those old patterns, to think about things in those old ways. But the invitation of Jesus stands, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's stated differently, but that invitation is the invitation that looms large over Hebrews 3 and 4. Enter into the rest that Jesus has afforded us. So in verse 9, the Bible says, Therefore, Sabbath rest remains for God's people. I think sometimes when we talk about Sabbath, there are negative connotations attached because of the way the Sabbath was abused or mistreated in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, it seems that every time Jesus is having issues, it's related to some Sabbath regulation. And even the way the Sabbath is observed or treated in modern expressions of Christianity can be out of step with the teaching of the Scripture. When I was a little boy, we would go visit my granny on Sundays, and uh, it was a granny that I eventually lived with and raised me, and she loved Jesus and invested in me, and, and I think is a big part. She was, she was God's means of getting me to the gospel, getting the gospel to me. But the drag about going to granny's on Sunday, it was the only time we really went there. It was kind of a little drive for us, at least it, I remember it that way as a little bitty fellow. But they had this big fishing pond behind their house, and granny would always say, if you fish on Sunday, you'll catch the devil, Right? I'm not sure at all that's what the Bible says about the Lord's Day, but I wasn't uh, prepared for a theological debate with Grandma at six or seven years old. And so I was forced to stand in that big bay window and look at that big fishing pond without any ability whatsoever to enjoy the fruits thereof. We attach all of these sorts of things when we think in terms of Sabbath, but Jesus could not be clearer in his ministry. That man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. In other words, we weren't created in order to be crammed into this paradigm where all of our life had to accord with or cohere with all of these regulations with regard to the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was made for us, for our good, for our benefit. It's mankind's first labor law to ensure that people have adequate rest, to rest according to the plan of God for us. The Sabbath was made for us. And we understand in the new covenant that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Now, practically, we still need that one day a week kind of rest, and you ought to observe that. And if you don't need that, then you're not working hard enough. And if you don't observe that, you will never work hard enough. 
But spiritually, Jesus is the fulfillment of that obligation. Jesus is the fulfillment of that responsibility. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Sabbath is not only a time when we take rest physically, it's also an opportunity for us to take rest spiritually. I I don't rest well, and, and you've experienced this, I don't rest well when there are things yet undone. In order for me to rest well, I need to have everything on my list of things checked off for that day or for that week if the weekend has come. Now, Sabbath intends that everything is checked off the list. There's something about Sabbath that not only means for us rest, it means reflecting with with some satisfaction that the work is finished. In other words, in the Old Testament, you would Sabbath not only to have physical rest, but to reflect on and give thanks for the fact that the work of the week was now behind you. When we take our Sabbath rest in Jesus, not only does that mean for us some degree of physical rest from our labors, it also means the spiritual rest of reflecting on the reality that the work of our salvation is done. Not the work of our last week, but the work of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. When we take Sabbath rest in Jesus, we're reflecting on the reality that the work of God on our behalf has been finished in Jesus Christ. For if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people is an invitation that we acknowledge that it's by grace and grace alone we've been saved, not the product of the work of our hands, but the finished work of Jesus. And his work is finished. Verse 10, the Bible says, for the person who is entered his rest, has rested from his own works just as God did from his. The person who has entered into the rest Jesus has invited us into has come to the realization that he may now rest from his works, for it's the works of Christ that save and sanctify and sustain. There is for us the promise of rest, Not rest way out there, somewhere far off. Not even the notion of rest in the beginning as observed by God. There is for us at the present hour rest for our soul in the finished work of Jesus. Now again, I'll ask if any of you are weary or worn or just plain tired. I think there's probably ample opportunity for the majority, if not all of us, to find reason to be weary, worn, ragged, to have a pity party, to moan and groan and complain about the circumstances of life. Uh, for me, I could name, rattle you off a list. I was thinking about this this morning, and, but for it taking too long, I'd probably rattle off a few in the way of an illustration of this point and how sweet it is to rest in Jesus. For me, I got to tell you, it I've yet to encounter an experience, and God forbid I do, but I've yet to encounter a circumstance, a situation, a series of events in my life 
wherein I was not greatly comforted by the absolute sovereignty of God over my life. It's the pillow upon which I lay my head every night with the knowledge that no matter what happens in my life, it cannot happen except for my good and for God's great glory. That's rest, brothers and sisters. That's rest. And if you've ever known the kind of weariness that I think is in view in our passage, it is a sweet and precious promise. Except you are sufficiently weary, except you are tired with some depth, this idea of being promised rest will not be as alluring or as sweet to you as it might otherwise be. I have often said it is one thing to be sick. It is another thing altogether to be sick and tired. It is one thing to be sinful and to be wrestling against that. It is another thing altogether to be sin sick. It is one thing to be ridden with guilt. It is another thing to wake up morning after morning after morning under the weight of that guilt and the idea that no matter what you do or where you turn, you could never escape the weight of that burden. It is one thing to bear with loss, to be downtrodden, discouraged, or saddened. It is quite another thing to live in a season of depression for months after months after months and years after years after years. It is one thing to tend toward legalism or religion. It is another thing altogether to be trained, indoctrinated for years and years and years that you must do A, B, and C in order to win or to merit the favor of God. And even as you risk life and limb to accomplish all that your God has required of you, you may or may not in the end meet his satisfactory approval. It is to those who have felt the weight of such experiences that Jesus whispers softly, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's cast differently, but it's the same invitation here in Hebrews 4. Come and find rest in Jesus. You're running hard, straining and striving. Come to Jesus and find rest. Or maybe you're not, and you're now living under the, the guilt of that, and you're reaping the harvest of whirlwind from years of slacking off and living lazily with regards to Jesus. Come unto Jesus, and he will give you rest. Jesus is the answer to all our issues. And it sounds so cliche, and we talk about such things in such a cavalier manner that it almost doesn't resonate anymore. But there is power in that, that all of our issues, all of our challenges, regardless of what shape, form, or fashion they may take, Jesus is the answer. Look at verse 11. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Listen again. Now remember, the theme of our passage is rest. And the closing verse for this long section on rest says, let us then make every effort to enter that rest lest we fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Does that sound contradictory to you? Rest, and, that, and now to close, 
Make every effort to enter that rest. Here, here's, here's what I'll say to you about this whole business of laboring to enter rest. The grace that God affords us is not opposed to effort. Like some people misinterpret we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, to suggest that we should give no effort whatsoever, that we live carelessly the rest of our lives without any concern for the command of God at all. That's the way some people interpret that. That was a problem in Paul's ministry. There were those who were saying we should sin more in order that grace may abound. Paul, could say, Paul would say nothing could be further from the truth. That's not the way this works. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to entitlement. If you think that you are entitled to the favor of God because you attend church, read your Bible, spend time in meditation, were baptized, eat the Lord's Supper, go to connect classes or any other thing for that matter, you just couldn't be more wrong. Grace is opposed to entitlement. But grace has never had a problem at all with effort, with our straining and our striving toward righteousness. That's where the point of balance really is for us. Let us then make every effort to enter into that rest acknowledges that there is a war being waged, not just with regards to our senses, our eyes against our ears, as we referred to in this passage about hearing his voice, hearing his promise, but there is a war within our members. It was observed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Spirit of God that abides in us is at war against the powers and principalities of the present age. There is a war being waged within us, and there is a war being waged about us, and we must make every effort that we hold fast to the promise of God, that we persevere, that we endure to the end, that we're steadfast and faithful along the way, even as Christ has been faithful in us. We must make every effort to trust the promise of God for the duration of our life, lest we fail to enter the rest that God has promised us through his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, come to him. Come to him. Come, come, come. If you're not weary this morning, your day's coming. Now, I, I pray that if you're not, that, that you'll allow that the seed of God's word would drill down deep in your heart and in due time when your season of toil and labor and weariness comes, that you'll remember, that you'll reflect back on the promise of rest and that that rest can only be found in Jesus. But for those of you who are there, I hope, I pray that you'll hear the gentle voice of the Savior, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's, it's a call that's as valid for us this morning as it was 2,000 years ago off the lips of the Savior. Come and find Sabbath rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but come, come, taste and see that the Lord our God is good. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. God, I pray that this somewhat obscure concept of rest would settle into the hearts and minds of your people. That for the believer who's been walking with you for 50 years, there'd be nourishment for their soul and the invitation of the Spirit to rest in this very moment. 
for the new believer, laboring, straining, and striving in, in young zeal and enthusiasm, God, I pray that the Spirit would invite them to rest in the Sabbath rest that Jesus affords us. Lord, for those who don't know you, for those who are far off, and maybe even for those who are confused about what it means to find rest in you, would you open their heart, grant the gift of faith, that they might enter into rest in the here and now, and be set on a course to receive the fullness of rest in a new heaven and a new earth that is to come. God, we pray that, uh, Lord, in the next moments as we have opportunity to respond to your word, that you would work and move through the power of your Holy Spirit and that our response to the reading and preaching of your word would be indicative of just that, that you have been at work among us. I pray, God, that you would save some, that you would call some to baptism as an expression of that salvation, that you would add to this local body through calling individuals into our fellowship as a faith family, and that in other ways, ways that maybe only you are aware of, you would stir in the hearts of those gathered here. We ask that daring and dangerous request Jesus taught us to pray, that your will would be done here even as it is in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.